0: Thanks, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to High Walk the Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for coming today. If you're brand new or just visiting or newish, like Ellen said, welcome to you especially and welcome back to the rest of you. Uh, great to see you all. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John right now, preaching-wise, uh, and we will be in this book for uh, quite a while longer, another 16, 17 months. But we are in Chapter 2, so we're making headway today. Finally finished the chapter. It was a couple of months, but here we are. Um, today we're going to look at one of Jesus' more famous miracles, When he turns water into wine at a wedding. Uh, But as always, there's more than meets the eye uh, to these stories. So uh, let's read from John 2. Today we'll look at uh, just this theme, especially of when the wine runs out. uh, We'll kind of extrapolate some things from there. But really, it's one of those sermons. this is probably almost always the case now that I'm thinking about this, but it's one of those sermons, I'll say it anyway, one of those sermons that will feel a little bit more um, hodgepodge, maybe in a good way though. Just so, There's just so many themes that all require our attention, I think, and even with that said, um, there's so many more rocks to pick up and look underneath that we won't uh, have time for today. So I, I encourage you to uh, to keep mining for gold. Uh, all, all of the, uh, you know, the, the quarries of uh, passages like these are just uh, so rich and, and never-ending, so. Let's read it from John 2, 1 to 12, if you want to turn in your sermon inserts or just follow along on screen or a Bible you have, that'd be great. Let's start here in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Okay, so I mentioned uh, to start this series, I think probably a couple of times, that John Um, In comparison to Matthew, Mark and Luke is is a little less concerned about chronology. And so, um, you know, the the first three gospel accounts kind of have this one big starting and spending three years in Galilee, then one motion down to Judea, which is where he dies. Uh, John's a little bit more like this, kind of back and forth for theological purposes. Uh, He's not intending to tell um, chronological history as much as theological history, Uh, So keep that in mind. But with that said, he's still here in Galilee. So we do have a general movement still in John where he spends time in this northern region, uh, ministering to people, healing the diseased and demoniacs and teaching and kind of preparing for the ultimate reason he was going to come, which was to die on a cross for our sins and to show us and usher in the love of God and and the forgiveness of sins that we uh, just just sang about a second ago. And so he's uh, in Cana and he... Interestingly, John is the only one that records this, but he's invited to a wedding. So, not just that he goes, but there's not a lot to say about this. I mean, at least I have nothing. Maybe you guys have something. But just the idea that Jesus was invited to a wedding is kind of cool. You know, like, and he comes. Like, I don't know. Like, if that actually happened um, to me or to, like, a party I was at, I'd feel like that was interesting. So, some some more intimate language, at least, right, that we have here, that Jesus is a person, human being just like us, and... uh, and here he responds. But uh, one thing I want to say, a couple of things, just by way of an aside, I guess, uh, here before we dive in, is Jesus did this miracle, it appears, somewhat behind the scenes. Uh, not many people realized what happened. I don't know if you guys picked up on that or not. Uh, a couple of the servants realized what he did, and it seems like the disciples later on, maybe in the party that kind of did, or maybe later on, they realized what was going on. But it, it's interesting because it means that for most of the people at the wedding, Jesus may have just looked like the guy who was helping the party to continue. Like, this is kind of, this is who he is, you know. Uh, Maybe it's a bit shocking to hear that one of the first things Jesus did in his ministry was bring more alcohol to a party, you know, uh, not less. And not the guy who shut it down, you know. Um, And more broadly, many of the early Christians who read this story felt, details aside, that the fact that Jesus went to a wedding at all underscored the importance of marriage, uh, that Jesus, who made male and female in the beginning, was now here in the flesh, reendorsing the institution of marriage by attending a wedding as a single man, to start his ministry. So I, it made me think of Hebrews 3, 13, four which is a just kind of a you know a closing uh, kind of ethical thing for the church, where he the author says uh, marriage should be honored by all. So married, single. Um, you know, uh, divorced, widowed, kids, adults, doesn't matter. Like, marriage should be honored by all. Um, and that, But I've I never really thought about it from this angle, just the angle that Jesus honored it. You know, like, this is one, one thing is for, for us to hear that, and it's good because of what marriage tells us about the characteristics of God and his divine romance, the great love he has for his people. We'll talk about that a little bit today, too. Um, but just to think that God kept that, you know, kept that uh, teaching that Jesus honored it. In, in the flesh, Jesus honored marriage. He endorsed it. He uh, attended weddings. He celebrated. He was all about parties that um, constituted, of course, um, the, the, I guess the reception or things like that. So anyway, uh, th- there's more to say about that. I'm not going to go too deep into that today. I want to instead do something, take a couple of different angles on this today, uh, but want to still mention that, and I think those are important things, that we see some characteristics, values there, that kind of come to the surface, even just from the very kind of thirty, really big 30,000-foot view. Um, All right, what I want to do, though, is talk about signs of newness uh, today. So um, the idea is that there's this unnamed couple getting married in Galilee and starting a new life together, and as that new thing is happening in a relationship, there's deeper signs of theological newness happening here as well. And all these three things could be their own sermons. I'm going to give definitely the shorter version today uh, for time's sake. But um, I was thinking this week, I just have to mention these. And, and I, it's not going to be the only thing I say today. We're going to go back after this, actually, and go through it one more time a little bit quicker. But from a different angle, you'll see what I mean here in a second. There's some method to the madness, uh, I promise. Uh, but here's a, a few things, though, that I think constitute theological newness that tell us what, what is Jesus doing. And P- Peter is praying a second ago that we... Um, you know, Jesus does these things to tell us about him. Uh, if you don't know who Jesus is yet or just learning, um, you know, and once that's excited for you, the kind of, you're, you're seeing this with fresh eyes. And if you do, uh, hear this with fresh ears. Uh, fresh eyes, ears, I'm mixing my uh, anatomical uh, metaphors there. But, um, but, but look at this from a new angle, freshly, and ask the question, why is this stuff here and what does it tell us about his mission? The first is kind of a review. It's, uh, it's the idea that Jesus here is, and John the author is employing new creation imagery. We've already seen this a lot in, in this book. Um, chapter 1, we talked about how the phrases in the beginning is used, Jesus being called the light, and the idea of all things made through him. All the, that terminology is right from Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible. And so when you see this happening again, the idea is that, oh, the hope of the prophets is here. And one of the hopes of the prophets was that a new creation is on the horizon. God is going to remake everything, and he's going to do it through this suffering servant or through the unexpected in this surprising way. All right, so Jesus then is a harbinger of that, of that time. And so we've already been seeing this a lot. Why I wanted to re-mention it today is that you have this weird thing in in this chapter where Jesus calls his mom woman. And you sort of like, when you, I don't know if you guys felt this when you, when you read that, but it sounds off, right? Like, I don't know if calling your mom woman would uh, go over super well, so don't take that home as a moral example to follow, uh, necessarily, in fact, don't, uh, it's not the point. But, the, um, but, but I will say, linguistically and culturally, it was not an offensive thing. Uh, to, to have that, but I also don't want to dismiss it completely, because I think there's something theological going on with that word that relates to this, that if we, if we kind of read too quick, we'll, we'll miss it. And basically, it's, uh, it's this. Jesus uh, says to, to Mary, he identifies her as woman rather than mother, uh, and the idea is that we've had this come up one other time in Scripture, in Genesis 2, when Adam says, the first man ever created, first human being, when God makes a woman from his rib, it's that he says, She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so uh, Eve is called woman before she's called Eve. And so linguistically what's happening here is that you have, again, a repeat. If Genesis 1 and John 1 are kind of lined up, Genesis 2 and John 2 are kind of lined up as well, where you have another nod to how God is continuing to remake all things through his Son, who is called a second Adam in Romans 5. You, you, again, you have two creations, two Adams, two women who are called woman, and two weddings. Uh, Genesis 2 is a wedding as well. All, all these things are not coincidences. Uh, they're meant to line up uh, to suggest to us that uh, Jesus is here to be a bridegroom. Uh, in this particular story, he's not, but he's there to, again, have an opportunity to use language that reminds us that he's the second Adam, that he is going to uh, claim and call forth from the tombs a new woman or Eve, which is us. And the idea here then is um, that it's not Mary who is the Eve uh, per se, it's all of us. Uh, Jesus is the second Adam, and the church is the second Eve. This is, if you haven't heard this before, this is very. Uh, basic Christian theology. Uh, the church has always believed this. It's not, it's not novel or new. Uh, maybe it's new to you today, but it's uh, very ancient. This is a pretty predominant biblical theme that Jesus is the second Adam. He's bringing a new creation into the world, remaking everything. But what's significant about the idea of bridegroom and wife motif is that it means that Jesus is showing himself to be like a groom, you know, and, and not like a benevolent boss who has things for you to do today. Uh, a lot of Christians have this idea that, you know, yeah, we're saved, we're converted, and then we wake up, and now the idea is, what does God want me to do? And that's not the first question. I mean, th- there may be some answers to that question, but is God like, um, you know, a, a just Lord or King? I mean, is he just like a, a boss? Or is he like a lover? Like, is he um, like a spiritual bridegroom? Is he, are we one with him? right? I mean, th- those are the deeper questions. And actually, right at the beginning of the gospel, this is to say, this actually is the metaphor. Marriage is the metaphor to describe what God thinks of us, how he's going to save us, uh, how he loves us. Uh, and, 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 that's, and the answer to that is it's by his vows and promises made to us, not our religious performance, you know? Uh, like, like a groom is and I actually got married in this building uh, 19 years ago, so I was, like, right here doing this, but I'm standing here watching Aletha walk down the aisle. Like, I'm not thinking, well, I guess she she had a pretty good week morally, so I think I'll let her marry me. You know, like, she uh, cleaned my shoes or something. Like, right? I mean, that'd be be like the epitome of non-romance and be stupid. No groom ever says that, right? If you're a terrible groom, you'd say that. But grooms are like, I want, I just love her. There's no reason why. She, I don't love her because she's, she's done stuff for me. I just love her, right? And if that's the case, then, and Jesus calls himself bridegroom, then how much more is he like that to you? He does not love you because you've done something for him or you've abstained from sin or kept his commandments because you haven't. He's loved you in spite of the fact that you haven't. As a Christian, I mean too. You have no, like, better ability to keep his laws now that you're saved, necessarily. He does that in you, but you and your flesh do not. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, in a lot of um, ways of understanding it, our lives don't change a lot as Christians sometimes. You guys ever had that thought of, like, why is my life not any different? In fact, that class we're going to do, Sinners and Saints, one way to ask this question is, how do we understand how the gospel speaks to, like, um, corruption or problems in the church another way to say is how do you understand it in here what if you're saved and you and you keep sinning see the problem the tension in that the class is gonna i mean in one sense address that too but grace speaks to that and says there is no problem with that you're not saved on the front or back end of anything you do religiously and if if marriage is the ultimate metaphor for this then we understand why we're loved in spite of our sin not because We haven't sinned up to the the marriage ceremony or the expectation that we won't after it, right? I mean, what groom says to their wife on their wedding day, well, now you have to be good or else I'll divorce you. It's like, come on, you know? I mean, we don't talk this way as human beings. Why do we put that on God? Why do you expect him? Why do you think he's like that? He's better than any husband who's ever lived. He's better than your husband. He's better than you husbands, Right? He's the epitome of grace and love. And so we have to let these scripture passages inform for us who God is and let them flush down the toilet the falsities that we have about him. He is not a conditional God. He's completely and totally unconditional who saves us by his vows made to us, not our vows made to him. Okay. Okay. The second thing we see is a new Exodus. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, many of you know. Exodus means escape or deliverance. Uh, It refers to Israel's uh, escape from Egyptian slavery. This is the story when Moses is sent as a deliverer, at least maybe you know him by name if you don't know what this means, when he sends plagues to incite Pharaoh to let Israel go. What happens, though, after that event, this is big like Bible 101 stuff here, is what happens after that event is the Old Testament is this one big story of another exodus is coming. Over and over and over again you see that. In the history books, in the Psalms, in the prophets, every section of the Old Testament says, expect another exodus and on a higher level. It's going to be better than the first one because it's for the whole world, not just Israel. And it's going to be from sin, not from Egypt. So it's spiritually understood. the 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 deliverance will be from the true enslaver, which is our heart, which is sin. Uh, In fact, um, Jesus says in John eight, and we'll preach this more when we get to it. uh, But it's important for today too to understand that Jesus talks in these terms. He says, "Whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin," and all have. Right, sin becomes our master. We become under its thumb. We're trapped. And the Bible says there's nothing you can do to escape. There's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to break the handcuffs off your ankles and wrists. Nothing. That's what the Bible's is saying. So we need, So then when a Bible, the Bible says God is going to enact another exodus, that's amazing news, right? But from an Old Testament perspective, it's forward-looking. But fast-forward to Jesus, and Jesus talks then in these terms, and he says, uh, whether you believe it or not, this is, this is the truth. The true problem is not out there, it's in here. Uh, it, it's it's part of the Bible's message. You're enslaved to something and you, and you don't realize it. I was uh, kind of joking this morning with some of the other um, uh, overseers, and I think Ellen was there too, but just saying, uh, we joke sometimes that referencing the movie The Matrix is very outdated, and it totally is. 1999, baby. Last millennia. Uh, but... But I wonder, like, um, Matrix 4 is coming out. Did you guys hear this? So maybe we can start to, like, justify re-mentioning it and not sound so dated. So I'm just going to do it. Um, (laughs) If 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 you've seen Matrix 1, this is the point of the movie, is that people are born into a prison. They can't smell or taste or see or touch. And the point of the movie is helping people to see that that that's the case and then to free them. Jesus is exactly doing that. People don't realize what the true enslaver is. And problem is, it is their sin. We are our biggest problems. It's not out there. Yes, there are problems out there, but it's not our biggest problem. So Jesus didn't come for those things ultimately. He didn't heal everybody of their sickness. He didn't fix all political problems. He just didn't. But he did fix all sin. And he never says no to someone who comes to him with open hands saying, I I see now, I can totally see, forgive me. Make me right with my creator. And, and Jesus always says yes, like, like a groom to a bride, right? Like, like a, the ultimate of, of lovers. So anyway, okay, this is, I got way off track there a little bit, but just bring us back to the, to the new Exodus, back to John 2. Do you guys remember what the first of the 10 plagues of Egypt was before the Exodus happened? Number one, it was when Moses stuck his staff in the water, and he turned the Nile River water into blood. Remember that? So it's not a coincidence that the first of Jesus' miracles is changing water into another red substance, this time wine. And It's not a coincidence when we factor in the idea that God is bringing a new exodus through his son into history. God is going to do plague imaging type things. In this case, they're both the firsts to say, Sometime down the road, I'm going to actually deliver you, right? Turning water into wine is not the deliverance. It's a sign that it's coming. Do you see that? It's, it's, it was the same with Moses. When, when he sucked his staff in the water, that was not the deliverance. They were still enslaved, right? It came later when the Passover lambs were slain and when uh, the death of the firstborns happened, if you know the story, and then they actually passed through the sea when it was split and all the Egyptians were drowned when they chased them. Th- that's when it actually tangibly happened, right? It's the same with Jesus. Like we don't have deliverance until he dies on that cross for our sins. There's no escape. There's no hope. These stories don't just exist as little like moral lessons or kind of cool things that may or may not have actually happened based on how comfortable we are with miracles. That's not the point. Point is that well they did happen, but the point is to say that they're forward looking. So it's not a coincidence, it's a sign, this, this idea here is a sign that Jesus is here to bring the long-awaited second exodus, which would constitute deliverance from sin. Uh, we've already read John one twenty-nine. behold the Lamb of God, in case we are wondering why he's here, who takes away the sin of the world. That's his mission. In other words, true escape, true exodus is coming for all who believe in him. Okay, the the third uh, of three here, signs of newness, is New Testament. Uh, It is very significant that um, this passage mentions that the jars that held the water were used for, quote, Jewish rites of purification. Uh, if, If you weren't aware, at different points, the Old Testament law required the Israelites to physically wash themselves or their clothing or other things if they became somehow ceremonially unclean. Um, This is a huge part of like biblical theology. I can't delve into too deep, but just understand that um, there there were these laws that identified how filthy we were as human beings on the outside and the inside. And it required washings. It required water sometimes to take and wash your hands and wash your body or wash your clothes uh, so that you could then draw near to God. You, you, you see, it's sort of like a, um, I'm, I'm putting these things in place so that there is, uh, you can cleanse yourself a little bit and, dra- and draw near to me. Um, and so that's what's in mind here. There may be some other Jewish traditions that were added on that are part of this, but this is certainly an explicitly biblical thing or a law that God had for a time for his uh, covenant, his Israel covenant people, Okay. So what's so important then about that and why they're mentioned here at all? Because if you think about it, why does John have to mention this? Why can't he just say they were Tupperwares? Or why can't he say that they were just jars or just uh, clay vessels of some kind, right? Why does he have to acknowledge this? And why does Jesus want this to be acknowledged? It tells us actually that there's more in the story than just water turning to wine. That there's more to it than that. If that's the miracle, obviously, but there's more going on. And this is one of the big things. This is a signifier that Jesus is bringing a New Testament, different than the old, into history. Because what's so important about this is that it shows us Jesus is treating the jars in a way that he's repurposing them for another use. He's not using them for their God-given purposes. Isn't that interesting? God said, use these for washing. Jesus says, no, no. I'm changing how I'm going to use them. Now they're going to hold wine for a party. And so he doesn't say then, come and wash yourselves like Moses said and like the Old Testament said. Now he says, come and drink, come and share, come and taste, come and celebrate, come and party, come and drink, come and be nourished. Jesus is basically here rendering purification rites useless. Useless because of what he's doing here with the jars. He's saying, what they used to do, that air is no longer here. It didn't work. The jars are becoming relics. Symbols of a time that is now past, a time when the law attempted to draw sinners close to God, but failed. The commandments of God that sought to reconcile people and cleanse them and bring them to him failed. Now a better way is here. Uh, Jesus is replacing the law. Wine is replacing water. Uh, This is why the master of the feast's language is so important when he says, most people save the bad wine for later, but uh, after people have gotten drunk and don't realize what they're drinking. But you've saved the better wine for last. This isn't normal. Like The rules are being broken here. That's precisely what's happening with Jesus. The old laws are being broken or at least being surpassed or changed or moved on from so that now the better thing is what is uh, replacing. And by the way, this is a major biblical theme to remind a lot of you of or to tell some of you for the first time. All the way throughout the Bible, the second thing is better than the first thing. It's almost like a proverb, right? So think of like the twins in the book of Genesis, how the second twin was the preferred twin or the twin that Jesus came through, right? The younger one, remember that motif that's on repeat all the way through the Bible? Or whether it's John the Baptist who came first is lesser than the guy who came second. We already read about this in, in it was Jesus, right? Who came, we read this in John chapter one. Or the Old Testament, the lesser Testament, giving way to the second one, the New Testament, which is greater, uh, First wine, giving way to second wine. Law to grace. Us washing ourselves with water is giving way to God washing our souls with Jesus' blood. That's where I really want you to to take this and, and to see. I mean, all those things are important. There's movement in the story from God saying, you wash yourselves from the water in the jars to now Jesus saying, I'm repurposing that. Now in the jars is my blood. Now now the agent of cleansing is my blood. It's, it's the wine of my blood. It's a pull from what he says about wine later, right? Now it's me. Now it's something different. Now drinking, actually, uh, in your state of uncleanness, an uh, alien solution or thing, something outside of you, not within, something from another person's hands, not your hands, is, is what cleanses you. You know, there's no buckets by the entrance of church, in other, in other words, to try to make this really... Maybe strangely practical, right? We don't ask you guys to wash your hands. Well, I guess we are, in a, we are kind of in a <laughs> thing right now. But then, all that aside, um, the, you know what I mean, though? It's sort of like, uh, it's not the wa- Like, we don't have holy water where you dip your fingers in and cross yourself, right? Um, see, the problem is not water. We know as Baptists, we're Baptists here, so especially we should know, right, that God has ordained water for a very holy use, baptism being the foremost, It's not so much water, it's mixing water with your hands. Because that says, you clean yourself, you wash yourself, and then God will accept you. That's the old way of thinking. The new way, in the wake of that system being destroyed and relicized, if that's a word, is that Jesus is saying, I'm replacing that entirely. The wine is not mixed. Do you guys like 50-50 water-wine mixes? Probably not. Those of you who drink wine. It's disgusting, right? Uh, You'd spit it out of your mouth. This is not a mix. God is not mixing law and grace. He's replacing it entirely with the idea that God loves you. He's not a benevolent boss. He's a savior. He's a bloodied, hardworking bridegroom who's slain all of our dragons in fighting all of our battles. Don't cheapen that by adding something to that. Don't cheapen it by saying, yeah, but there's something else to do. There's no yeah buts to that. There's no buckets by the entrance of God. Uh, There's there's no cleansing required, but instead um, to receive the cleansing he offers us when his son dies, dies, dies in our place. All right? Let's, uh, what I want to do now, guys, with those three things said is kind of go back through this one more time in a quicker way, but uh, from a little bit different angle, um, and talk about Jesus as the problem solver, the servant, and the, the wine taster, because he, um, he is also, he's in a lot more imagery than, than maybe you think, or maybe you do think, but maybe you don't. Uh, so Mary's statement, we'll start with this, Mary's statement, they have no wine constitutes a problem, Right? It's a problem we don't have any wine. It's a problem it ran out when the party has four more hours to go or something like that, right? That's a problem. And Jesus fixes the problem. So I know I'm stating the obvious here, but if the whole Bible is set up around that paradigm, problem to God fixing it, the whole biblical story is one big fat one of those, then the smaller stories are going to be microcosms of that greater idea, like mini-versions of there's a problem, human beings can't fix it because they can't turn water into wine. Only God can fix it, and so he does in love. You guys see that? This is a microcosm. This is not the ultimate. This, this plays a, a minor supporting role in the drama of redemption history. It is not the main thing. The main thing is when this happens, and we'll talk about this in a second, but uh, in a heightened way later in, later in the story. But I like how Jesus uh, is kind of hoisted upon by the problem. This is what often happens when there's a point leader in the room. You guys, if you've been a leader before or in a room with a leader, you ever been in this situation where there's like a really big problem, like at work or maybe it's in your family or with your friends, and you're like, there's a big problem we can't fix. What tends to happen is you kind of look to the leader in the room sometimes. You're like, well, you got any ideas? Like, you're paid for this, you know, or something, or whatever you'd say, right? Like, you're, you're the one who's good at this leadership thing. Uh, this happens a lot in, in leadership settings. I've been in, the, in those rooms sometimes as a follower and a leader, uh, and it's, it's crazy how much that tends, you know, that, that tends to happen. Um, and I think it's happening here. Jesus is immediately hoisted upon by the problem. My sister actually jokes sometimes, uh, it's half joke, half true, where, like, if the problem in their family Big problem, she'll like look to her husband sometimes and say, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, he's like, and he's like, that's not that funny, you know, or whatever. Like he's kind of like, ha, ha, ha. Um, but, but she's like laughing and um, half joking, but half totally serious. That's what like, my, you guys know my sister. Some of you do. It's funny if you know her because she's super just drilled in but also really light at the same time. So you don't really get what she's, if she's joking or not sometimes. But um, but anyway, but leaders get that. And so I think what this passage says to us, is that um, Jesus is the leader; he's the problem solver. But in other ways, he's like the servants. You know, the people who get the wine and fix the and uh, get more of the food are the servants. Jesus is figuratively tying an apron around his waist and going back to the kitchen to find more food. That's what the servants do, right? So he's both—he's Lord and servant, miracle worker and foot washer. Uh, Or to put it a different way, the way that God solves our problems is by becoming a servant. And that, when you say it that way, we're really starting to get at what the gospel really is. It's not just that there's a problem and that it's fixed, but how specifically that the Bible is at pains to show us. And the whisper we get here, among other things, is that Jesus will become very, very low. He'll become... Somehow underneath us, even though he's God's son and is perfect, he will die in our place. He will wash our feet ultimately and fill the, the empty jars of our life ultimately with the wine of his blood when he dies on that cross. All right, but why does he say, uh, what does this have to do with me? This kind of an interesting thing, right? When he says to his mom, um, look, like, why, why are you bringing this up? Uh, why, why are you dragging me into this? <laughs> it's probably too strong and sarcastic. Depends on like, what your inflection is, right, for Jesus' voice when you read this. Uh, when, when I hear it, I can, it can sound kind of dismissive, but I don't think it is. That last um, clause, my hour has not yet come, helps us understand what he's doing here. He's not being dismissive, he's teaching us theology. He means to say here, why are you focusing on this wine when I have in mind the redemption of the world? You know, it'd be like if you're um, terrible at on-the-spot illustration, so bear with me, but like if you're building a house, right, and someone comes up, and, and you have to get it done really quickly, and someone comes up and says, you know, there's an anthill over here, and they're like, can you kill the ants? And you're like, dude, like, I don't have time for this, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's probably a terrible illustration, but whatever. Take that for what it's worth. Um, but it's sort of like that. Jesus is saying, why, um, this is not really, this is a small thing. And I came for really, really big things. Um, There's actually a lot of cool bunny trails here for us individually as Christians, thinking about prioritizing in our life. I would say, like, as a leader in a church, um, and I'm guessing, uh, Spence, you'd probably uh, amen to this, but I I think, like, um, sometimes we get questions or we get um, offered ideas of things to start as a church or be involved with, or we have our own ideas, uh, that we run through this filter where we say, well, what does that have to do with the church, though? You know, what does that really have to do with the mission of God? What does that really have to do with our true vision as a church? And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, and we just don't do it. You know, like there are good things that are not central things, and we don't always say yes to things, you know? Um, And so I think, like, what you really have here is Jesus sort of helping us to see yet again that there are great things and not as great things. And I don't mean, I don't mean bad things, I just mean good only. Good only, but great or different. And Jesus clearly, like, like last week with Nathaniel, if you're here for that, when Nathaniel said, or he said to Nathaniel, you think that's great, wait till you see the better thing. That's coming? Same idea. So don't read the Bible as though it's a flat story where everything's equal. Jesus doesn't do that. So if you do that, you're doing something Jesus never did. You're doing something the Bible does not give you permission to do. It's not all equal. All God's word, but not equal in relevance, right? This story is preparatory, not ultimate. If you didn't have the cross and all you had is a story, you'd have the story of a miracle worker, but you'd have no New Testament. You'd have no reconciliation with your creator, right? I know I'm stating the obvious here, but I'm saying this because I know it's a temptation for you. It is for me. And we get confronted with this stuff a lot uh, in, in ministry, and we hear about it out just in the world. There are greater things, and there are lesser things, and the order is, is crucial. Alright, but then there's the question of, well, he still does it, right? He still addresses the wine problem, which is pretty cool. And you could say very patient of him and gracious. Um, but he's doing it probably not because he's changing his mind and all of a sudden thinking, actually helping wedding receptions not to run out of wine is central to my mission. You know, I am, I'm the, the divine supply chain person now all of a sudden. He's probably not changing his mind on a whim. What, what he is doing, though, is, is he's probably using the miracle to, quote, demonstrate and manifest His glory to show his love and power, and to tell us about what he really came to do. And if you guys are new to Jesus, this, again, this is sort of Jesus 101 stuff, but as we read the Gospels, Jesus is a master at taking something physical and using it to be an allegory or a symbol of what he really came to do. Now think of like bread in John 6. That's one of the big ones. Or think about uh, the character of a shepherd. Right, And he's saying, I am, I am the true version of that. But he, but he uses the physical thing to say, I am like that but better. And so these, lesser, these smaller stories, this is what he's doing. He's, uh, he just said, what does this have to do with me? But then he did it anyway. Uh, I, I think to reconcile that, the best way to reconcile that is to say, he's not changing his mind about its centrality, not having wine. He's saying, I'm going to do it and use it to point all of you beyond it, to what's better. And when we do that, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not just the mention of woman or the allusion to the first plague in Egypt or the thing with the jars of purification. Jesus is ultimately referencing his own death with the statement, my time has not yet come. That's what he means by my time. I mean, what else could it be, right? There's no other options my time, my ultimate reason for arrival on earth, to be a savior, to bleed for others and pour out the wine of my blood that people might drink of it and be saved and be forgiven. That's what he means. Uh, Caesarius, who was an ancient Christian in the fifth century, said about this passage, the miracle Christ performs at the wedding is a foretaste of the dowry or payment of his blood which Jesus will give for his bride. So this is just a common way that people have always interpreted this passage is that it's symbolic of the cross. It's symbolic of the, the, the true wedding, which happens when Jesus dies on that tree uh, for his bride and calls her from her tombs. So when we look at it that way and kind of like lay that over the passage, there's actually other characters and sayings and things that we could apply to this. I'll, I'll mention a few here to start to close. There's many more though. Um, But when we do this, we could look at a character like the master of the feast who tastes the wine and say, later in the story, Jesus actually would taste wine as well Uh, when he was dying for the sins of the world in a much greater way. But he didn't just taste wine uh, when it was held up to his mouth. He tasted the wrath of God. Uh, Justice was poured out on him so that it wouldn't be for us. And he tasted death's sting, uh, to quote scripture, uh, elsewhere. Also, blood and water would pour from his side, reminding us that, again, the second exodus is happening through his body. Um, you have those two linked things, blood and water again, but it also reminds us that plagues fell on him, not you. That's kind of what makes him different from Moses, uh, is that the, lo- the locale, the locus of the plague is poured out on him, uh, not on objects around him, uh, like us right? Uh, we're spared because he's plagued upon by the father. Uh, but this is the means of escape. This is the means of escape. He would also, uh, you could say, give, give himself away fully for his bride, right? Uh, like the wine ran out, so will his blood be spilt fully, not partially, for his people. A quote also, uh, to the brim. Uh, see, even, even things like that language there uh, teach us about grace. Jesus' Uh, desire is not just to give us some redemption, glass half full redemption, but to fill our emptiness to the brim. You know, like, uh, and this, this again tells us that we know the point because none of you in the room have probably ever prayed to God because your wine ran out at a party. I'm guessing none of you have ever done that. If, if, you, if you're the one exception, I stand corrected. But you probably never have. That's not the point, Right? The point is, your, jar, your hope jars are empty. Your hope has run out. Not your wine. Your hope is, you have no hope. And then you pray. You have no, like, uh, moral acuity. Your, your uh, bastions of, like, all the good you've done is completely empty. None of us ultimately have. We have nothing to give to God. And so we have no hope. We have nothing to bring to Him. That's when we start praying. That's when we say, The wine is truly run out. God, help me. Help me. And He does. But that's why He says, What does wine have to do with me? I'm here for sin. I'm here to take care of that. I'm here for the hopeless, the brokenhearted, the end of their rope, the ones who can't stop sinning no matter how hard they try, they make it worse. The ones who know their need, the sick, not the healthy, right? The list goes on. To, to use Jesus' language here, what do brims of jars have to do with me? I mean, the answer is nothing and everything at the same time. It's nothing because he didn't come for brims, he came for sin, but everything because of what brims teach us. Full cups teach us about theology. He came to, full, to fill the brim of the cup of God's grace for sinners. See, the, bash, the empty bastion you have is not filled with water anymore, as if you're supposed to wash yourself. It's filled with the wine of Jesus' blood. This, Guys, this is what we have to choose to believe in. Do you believe this or not? That's what it comes down to. Or do you believe in a 50-50 terrible wine mix? That's another option that the Bible says, do not believe it. Don't take it. Law and grace do not go together. Either it's all grace or it's all law. Um, Romans 11 teaches that, other places. Uh, we've been talking about this in this series. But, but I would just say that, I'll just close this up by saying, verse 11, his disciples believed in him. That's really the only thing to take from this passage, you guys. There is nothing to do. And I think, you know, for some of you, whenever you see this, like, uh, quote-unquote application, it's not really application, there's no application here, it's just to believe, like, that can be really freeing or really frustrating, right? Like, if you really want something to do, because it makes you feel better about your, your faith, it makes you feel like you're being more obedient, like you have sort of reciprocated something to God, I would say those are terrible reasons to, to do anything anyway, so, but, but I would just say, um, this passage is letting you go. It's letting you walk free. The disciples just trusted him. They believed in him because of this miracle. They followed him all the way to Calvary, down from Galilee to Judea, away from that miracle to the essence of why it existed in the first place, which was to point to the dowry, the payment of Christ's blood, which purchased us out of hell, bought us up out of our graves because sin was paid for it was a debt we couldn't, pay, we couldn't pay, right? But that's the ultimate invitation. So I'm just going to leave you guys myself and I, because the Lord, this is what God has in his word, is after all is said and done, no matter how much of that made sense or didn't make sense, uh, to see that God is a harbinger of newness, of exodus, escape, of light, of bridegroom love, um, of creation, the way he did that was by being the ultimate master of the feast, by tasting wine on the cross for us, the wine of God's wrath and judgment, uh, the sting of death, by having blood and water pour from his side. And through that, those who believe in him are saved from hell. And they're, um, they have their forgiveness of sins, and they're, everything's going to be okay. It really is. Because of what he did, you guys, everything's going to be okay in your life. Uh, It may not feel that way, but it is. The tomb is totally empty, and God has spent everything to save you, everything. He's not stingy, no half jars, full jars to the brim of God's love and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, passage that uh, serves a beautiful supporting role in the greater story of redemption. Uh, thank you God for all those things I think I just said and summarized but um, that that you are a bridegroom that you love us you're not a benevolent boss Uh, you replace the water with the wine like the old testament is replaced by the new uh, law mediating us with with you is replaced by grace mediating us with you Um, Jesus we pray as we sing this last song and and take communion and, and leave here that um, we'd feel nourished uh, uh, on your blood alone, not on the works of our hands, not on our ability to clean ourselves up, inside or out, uh, but completely and totally on on you and what you've given us for your son. Uh, Thank you that we have grace to the brim, we have love to the brim, and even past that, overflowing. um, And uh, we pray you'd help us to really, really focus on that now and not to graduate from it in our minds. In your name we pray, amen.